Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today on Conversations on Dance, we are delving into the research and advocacy of the Dance Data Project. We are joined by DDP President and Founder Elizabeth Eintma and Senior Research Consultant Janila Silman. The pair tell us about DDP and its mission. They break down their recent Artistic Director Executive Director Compensation Report. Tell us about their first look report that came out this month and the research that they have planned for the future. Learn more about DDP on their website, dancedataproject.com. We have linked to the recent reports that we discussed in the description of this episode. Well, thank you both for joining us today. We've been following um, DDP's work for so long now, and so we're excited to have you guys on. You have especially great information for us. So first, I just wanted to get started um, to talk about how DDP came into existence and what your mission was when you set out. I think I'll take that one. Hi, everybody. I'm Liza Eintem. I'm the founder and president of DDP, and I had one of those aha moments I was sitting in the auditorium theater in Chicago, Illinois, which is one of those great temples to culture that people used to build. Um, I always tell people that instead of like one elephant crossing the stage in Aida, they had an entire herd of elephants going across. And that's about the right size. Um, it's mm-hmm. so big. The only person I've ever known to be able to completely fill the, thea- fill the theater on his own was Anthony Bourdain. And that's because of the size of his ego, although he was fabulous. But anyway, so <laughs> this massive palace of culture, probably about 2012, 2013. And all of a sudden sat straight upright and I looked around the theater, you know, 2,500 people, the theaters were semi-full at least back then. And then I looked at the program, which looked like the September issue of Vogue at that point, because it was this full, gorgeous, glossy program, none of these last minute Mm -hmm. paper printed things. And I realized that, and it turned out I was right later, that about 70% of the donor base and 70% of the audience was female. Hmm. Then I realized, and I looked at the catalog for the entire year, right, the season programming, Mm -hmm. 
And I thought about it and I realized I had never seen a production led by a woman Mm -hmm. and thought about it even more. I'd never seen a female composer. I'd never Mm -hmm. seen a female lighting designer, although that I might've gone back and I'm like, wait a minute here, what's going on? Because um, I had a a background in ballet myself and the universe was female back then. Um, Mm -hmm. My teachers were the head of the school, et cetera. And even when and when I was growing up, Boston Ballet was run by a woman. And I'm like, what's, what's changed? What's happened? And the more research I did, the more absurd the answers got. And I heard phrases like, Liza, there are no good women choreographers. Liza, women just want to dance and have babies. That one was a spectacular one. Um, women can't choreograph or run companies because they're used to being lifted up. Um, not the ones doing the lifting, and it means they don't have the right perspective. That one I really didn't understand at all. And it sort of continued from there. And I'm Scottish and Dutch and come from a long line of uh, troublemakers, um, and particularly women in my family. And I just kept digging and digging, and the answers got more and more absurd. Uh, but I was also told over and over again, you know, this is the way things always have been. Um, and And therefore, of course, this is the way things always will be. And so go away, sit down, um, put on a pretty dress and write a big check. And uh, I was like, that just doesn't sound right. And so DDP was born at my kitchen table as a simple spreadsheet. And it's grown Mm -hmm. since there. We're about to release our 22nd full report. We've released nine data bytes, three different series of um, programs, a leaderboard that's now about 850 women and on and on. Wow. Wow. What, what were some of your, that, that first spreadsheet, what, what did that contain? What kind of info did you it get? It was a the, mess the because I didn't have Nyla or any of the <laughs> other brilliant people that I've got <laughs> on my team now for whom I'm so grateful. Um, I, I, um, working off of um, Copley and Seiwert's really groundbreaking work on, they had recorded, um, looked at as many companies as they could and recorded the season programming. And I think she did that in 2015. And when I found that, that gave me an idea. But it was simply choreographers and it was not all that well organized. And of course, at that point, Rebecca and Michael, we didn't have longitudinal research. So I had a snapshot of a moment in time and our research techniques have gotten much more sophisticated. And Nyla is really the person to address that. But I just recorded all work. So it was raw data. So we didn't distinguish, which is really important, between world premieres, U.S. premieres, full-length work, black box, trainee company, second company, mainstream, right. et cetera. And so it, it was it was pretty ugly. Yeah. I actually sent it to somebody um, very, very well-known in the ballet world who sent back, what am I supposed to do with this question mark? Mm-hmm. And that was fair. Uh that was fair. I should not have even sent it to her. Um, Nyla, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing um, within the organization. And and Liza, you already mentioned these data bytes that come out. And so let's hear a little bit about what um, your work is and about this newest one pertaining to artistic directors and executive directors. Yes. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Janila Stillman. I am currently a, a senior research consultant with Dance Data Project. Um, but I started as a research intern in 2021, and then I worked through becoming a research consultant. And then, like I said, finally, a senior research, senior research consultant in 2022. Um, but along the way, especially working on the research side, there's also a programming side. 
which I am getting more exposure to um, now in this title. But as a research intern and as a consultant, a lot of the times I was just working on either data bytes or full reports. Um, now we have an algorithm that helps us sort through things a lot quicker. But for a while, at least when I started, we were manually going through um, sources, going through websites, using Excel sheets and double, triple checking, making sure everything is correct because all of our information comes from publicly available sources. And then um, if needed, we will reach out to the organization, um, the company, and to verify with them that the information is correct mm -hmm. and um, so on and so forth. Um, so that has been my job. And then I also, once we get the information and we verify and everything, then formatting the report and double and triple checking and going through a hundred of edits before we finally release it. Um, and one of my favorite things about working with Liza is she's very thorough and very true about being honest about what we say. Um, and although we're humans, we do make manual errors. So if we do make an error on something that we have already released, she's going to be very transparent about what the error was and how do we correct it and how do we move forward. Um, so being a part of that machine, my job is just to be very diligent about everything that we say and we want to continue just to be an honorable system that just puts facts out there about the gender inequities within this industry. Mm -hmm. um, and personally, with the artistic director and executive director compensation report, um, I came along near like the second half. Um, the data was sourced by our data engineering consultant, Andrew um, Hoextra, mm -hmm. and then I came in and formatted it and helped him build it to the report that was officially released. Mm -hmm. What are the publicly available sources that you're calling the data mm -hmm. from? I'll, I'll start a little bit and then I'll have Nyla go through. So folks... Um, if you're listening, tax returns are sexy. It is how they caught out the phone, um, but it's it. Uh, we we find that a lot of the journalists we deal with, particularly in the performing arts area, are terrified of numbers and they run the other way. That's really too begat too bad because they're missing the story. So mm -hmm. we work off of the IRS filed tax returns, but there's a significant lag, and I'm going to let Nyla go into the intricacies of that between when that um, when when the end of a fiscal year is, then when a company has to file their tax returns, sometimes an amended tax return, and then there's a further lag. Um, while I think the IRS is missing literally 250,000 in investigators or personnel during the right. Trump administration, the, the organization right. was really slashed. So there's not a lot of people doing audits, but there's also a process of uploading it to the computer. So folks are like, well, why can't you give us the 2022 data? And I'll let Nyla explain that. Yeah, yeah. let's actually, I, if we could kind of like go back a little bit on that, because this um, report, let me see, it goes through, what is it? Fiscal year 2016 through fiscal year 2020. Is that right? And you're still, so you're missing 2021, which would reflect most of the pandemic changes, right? So let's talk about what we're waiting on for that and and when you guys expect to um, continue this work you're doing with um, this report. Correct. Um, well, we're still waiting on, there are some companies who have uploaded their fiscal year 2021 um, 990 forms and that are publicly available, but we try our hardest to really be consistent across whatever um, category we're researching. So we researched 50 companies um, and it's best if we can get as many 50 in there so that it is a, a consistent comparison and not having to make too many adjustments. Mm -hmm. And um, right. we plan to release um, a fuller version of this report next year. Um, honestly, probably a year from now. So probably next November. Mm -hmm. And 
our hope is that it would be up there and then it will be from honestly from what we have from 2020 to 2021 just to see changes as well as including smaller companies because mm-hmm. um, we only focused on the largest 50 and we're interested in looking at what is the disparity between companies with big, bigger budgets and companies with smaller budgets, right smaller budgets. Mm-hmm. right I'm wondering, this is maybe a, a tangent, but I, I just to go back, you know, obviously this was born of um, gender disparity in pay and um, leadership roles and positions and titles. But have has the organization been able to branch out to racial disparities or um, just the, you know, the difference between the, the top of the pile, like artistic director versus dancer salaries? Or is that harder to get into? I'll, I'll take that one. Um we are the only organization out there that is representing the majority of the dance world, and that's women, uh, women and girls. Um, the demographic of the performing arts is overwhelmingly female. Um, dance within that is um, the most female of um, the performing arts. It's the youngest, the least educated, two and a half times more likely as a dancer choreographer, which is the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics category to live at or near the poverty line. Mm. So let me say that again. Dancer choreographers are two and a half times more likely to live at or near the poverty line. Even within that, there's a massive gender disparity. Um, So let me answer the second question first. We work with publicly available salary data. Of course, we'd love to know what dancers are making. And by the way, now that uh, Jill Nala can talk a little bit more about this, but it's not just salary. People need to understand there's an entire compensation package, and that includes, you know, mm-hmm. like contract. It includes um, d- disability payments, et cetera. Um, and a big problem in the dance industry is that so many women are actually treated as independent contractors, and we can talk a little bit more about that. In terms of all the other inequities that we recognize are out there, um, this is um, outside of our mission and also outside of our expertise and categorization. Um, Obviously, I'm not a person of color. And the assuming that I can look at somebody's picture and identify what race they say they are or identify their uh, their gender, unless it's given, or their sexual orientation, I think is really inappropriate and is way, way past what I set out to do. That sure. said, if you look at our website and in my own personal philanthropy, we try and encourage um, gender representation. Um, our staff is very diverse. My personal philanthropy is to support choreographers of color. Um, but that is a whole nother category. And it also becomes extremely controversial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, just to add to what Liza is saying, especially as a, I also am a professional dancer um, and working with Liza as a research consultant, as a woman who, as a person who identifies as a black woman, although that is not the niche of this organization or our specific focus, we do believe that in empowering all women that does put women of color to the forefront. Um, me specifically, I came Eliza through a woman named Stephanie Baden Bland. She is the artistic director of a company, Company SVB, and I also dance for Miss um, SVB. Um, but I met her. She was a professor at my alma mater, Montclair State University. Um, so even just through those connections, Liza also. Um, has connected me to Alicia Graf Mack, and I've had wonderful conversations with her and about her journey with um, Dance Theater of Harlem and her work with Juilliard. Um, 
And you can also see with some of our uh, conversations about women during the pandemic, um, where Liza was just interviewing and the DDP team interviewing different women about their experiences um, and working in the pandemic. So we really do um, try to highlight all voices through the niche of being women. Um, and then to the point about dancer salaries, as far as it being publicly available, um, and within this report specifically, as we source 990 information, um, the only reason why compensation is given on the 990 form is if they are an official officer um, or if they make above $100,000. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're not all well, no dancer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, not no dancer, but few. It's few and far between. Right. Only in the I mean, really big yes. companies. <laughs> I mean, right. yeah, the answer, and, and of course you asked the right question, right? That is the other half of the equation. I will tell you that we get private messages all the time. I get emails from both female artistic director candidates, and um, we're getting them from dancer, dancer organizations that are using our data to advocate for better salary. So we really believe that transparency generally um, is, you know, sunshine is is the best practice. I would love to work with example, uh, for example, with a university, um, some kind of think tank to source dancer salaries. But we have to be very, very careful about that. I don't know if Rebecca and Michael, you are, are all are aware of the recent um, Glassdoor litigation where Glassdoor had to turn over the identities of everybody who submitted their information. I find that terrifying. I think it's a terrible decision. But I also have an ethical obligation to take care of the people who entrust us with their data, mm-hmm. right? Right. So. Yeah. Until we can see um, a clear way to store that data and also to ensure that it's never, ever going to be shared on an individual basis, mm-hmm. I, I just don't think it's the right thing to do. Sure. It right. just, I Fair. certainly understand, you know, it's just like, as I was looking at this data, I'm thinking, you know, it's so interesting to see what these officers are making and how it's changed. And then it just would be so because, of course, we have heard things about what then what the dancers make. But of course, it makes perfect sense as to why that's not something that's feasible, at least at this time. But I, I going back to this report, tell us um, about some of the in, the particular moments that stood out to you. There was a lot of things that made me kind of go like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. So tell us some of the outliers for you in this data. Absolutely. So one of the biggest things, especially in looking at um, the time frame from fiscal year 16 to fiscal year 2020, knowing that the pandemic hit, knowing that many companies had to um, go out of commission, many dancers had to be furloughed. Um, we were interested in, in looking at what um, the budgets of the company looked like compared to the leadership and um what better ways can we create an economic lens so that everything can be equitable across the board moving forward? Um, okay, so in knowing that uh, many companies were furloughed or um, stopped being in commission, we saw that budgets dropped by 9%, yet um, artistic director salaries increased by 3.2%, and um, executive director salaries had increased by 1.5% for that year, mm-hmm. um, respect to the year 2019. Um, which is a very interesting distinction, considering that the years before um, budgets only had only actually increased by four to five percent right. into this very large increase due to the pandemic. Um, and then when you get into specific salaries, um, some artistic directors and executive directors had really large increases, not necessarily during the pandemic, but overall in general, which was very interesting. Um, as I point out, as 
DDP, we don't understand the why. We don't have the resources to give you a why as these salaries happen, but we note them and we put the facts mm-hmm. out there. Um, some of them being some of the largest increases going to Lourdes Lopez of Miami City Ballet, um, who had a 78% increase from fiscal year 18 to 19. Um, also, Aspen Santa Fe Ballet, their artistic director, Tom Mossbrucker, had a very large increase. Um, which was 67.6% from um, fiscal year 16 to fiscal year 17. Um, And looking at those large disparities was very interesting, as well as like noticing um, the difference between a company having a large increase versus a large decrease. Our largest decrease was only um, 15%. um, And that went to Victoria Morgan of um, Cincinnati Ballet. Um, Mm -hmm. Noticing that most companies traditionally had a bigger larger increase than their than their directors had a larger decrease Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are you able to surmise like what percentage of an overall budget for the organization these um salaries are because that that would be of interest i think if it's they're getting this huge increase but maybe for some reason they were underpaid like what what else is under the hood here yeah what else do we find I, I do want to, um, before before we continue, I do want to point out a couple of things. Rebecca, back at the beginning, you had mentioned that most of the pandemic would have been captured in 21. I'm not necessarily sure that's the case. Oh, okay. I think we're going to need to wait till 24 or 25. Okay. Um, one of the things that's interesting to note is that that we can't tell because it's not in the budget is whether there's a guaranteed compensation level. So somebody may have in leadership may have taken a cut and then that cut will later be restored. Sure. Um, Or or they've gotten a performance bonus, which totally makes sense to me. So that might um, account for it. You had asked also about, is there a correlation between a leadership changeover and, um, and change in salary. So for example, um, the example of Victoria Morgan at Cincinnati Ballet, one of those people that can do everything. She was the CEO for a while, helped build a new building, and then they hired an executive director. So she stepped aside and was solely the artistic director. So that may, I'm not sure we, again, we are the what, not the why, that may be why her salary went down. Mm -hmm. But there are still some crazy outliers out there. for example, Aspen Santa Fe, where you see the executive director and the artistic director ramping up with these massive salary increases, and then the company goes out of business. That was wild right. for me to see. I I had no idea that that was what was happening salary wise before that. Of course, we all knew that it you know went away during the pandemic or what we thought was due to the pandemic. And was that surprising to you to see that data? Um, I had I had been following the Aspen Santa Fe um, sort of drama back and forth quite a bit. Um, The other thing we should bring up is the cost of living in certain places. So, you know, everybody knows San Francisco is super expensive. Everybody knows Boston is super expensive, New York. But if you think about it, Aspen Santa Fe is located in a resort town and it is notoriously pricey. A lot of, you know, folks I know who are like ski instructors or massage therapists have to live two hours away, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so the dancers are hanging on and hanging on and hoping that they're going to get reemployed and not, not really hearing. And then one day, you know, the company goes away. Um, but what you see is the artic- artistic and executive director's salaries really ramping up. Also of note, I think Michael and Rebecca is, and Nyla should be talking about this, not me, is the process by which salaries are set. 
best practices is that you um, either hire a firm or do your own research to find out what other what other folks who are similar in the field are paying. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason we've created this report, and we, as Nyla said, we, next year we hope to go to 100 and then 150 companies, is so right. for these smaller companies, festival venues, we, if they can't afford those kind of surveys, if they can't afford an, an attorney, for example, to create a code of conduct, they can come to our website, no paywall, which is really important to us, no subscription fee, and get the information they need. And whether that's to set salaries or, you know, to create a code of conduct or sexual harassment policies, we want the information there. Um, but I think there were a couple of other outliers that I my my jaw still drops. So we never know what we're going to find. And that's that's super important. Nyla, Nyla has talked about the fact that sometimes things we have a theory going in and it doesn't work out. And we're very transparent about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll, I'll let her take over a little bit. Um, absolutely. Part to what Liza was saying about um, building a code of contact with these organizations or giving them resources so that they can understand how to set equitable compensation, which um, by the National Council of Nonprofits is deemed as um, reasonable and non-excessive. And the way to do that, of course, is, is really honestly looking at organizations who have a similar budget and a similar mission as you and looking at what they pay to the directors and finding where you all align so that people in similar categories can grow together and be at a fair level playing field within their own specific company. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Why the numbers with Asmundson Affair are very, very interesting because it is a company who is relatively small in the genre of the largest 50. So um, DDP, we have a report called the largest 50 um, companies in financial scope of the industry. And in the largest 50, Asmundson Affair was ranked number 39, which is based on um, budget by exponential, right? What is their budget company size? Um, and so when you look at companies who have similar budgets to them, like Oklahoma City Ballet, whose uh, budget was around 4 million for fiscal year 2020, and then you look at SMU and Ballet, who was ranked number 41, um, whose budget was around 3.5 million. And for reference, at this time, Asmussen Affairs' budget was 3.7 million. Um, so there's only like a 4 to 11% difference between these three companies, and they all have very similar budgets. However, what the senior staff making was drastically different. When you look at Oklahoma City mm-hmm. Ballet, um, their director, Robert Mills, was only making $131,000. In that same year, uh, Tom Mossbrocker of Aspen Cinefe Ballet was earning $340,000 in total compensation. And those numbers are typically numbers for um, artistic directors of much larger dance companies with much larger budgets. Um, And so when you look at what the National Council of Nonprofits are saying, when you say, hey, look at these companies who have similar budgets so that you all can make some amounts of money, you can see there's a disparity between what they pay their senior staff and what they should actually be making based on the size of their budget and the mission of their company. Hmm. Eliza seemed to light up when when you mentioned total compensation, because that is maybe something different than just like base salary. And there's so many like you, you had mentioned earlier, there are just so many other things that you can get the benefits that right. are, you know, not available to probably many other people in the organization. Right. So on the upside, I, when I'm talking to, and we've we've done, it, it's been really fun. We've ended up doing some sort of counseling behind the scenes and helping women apply. Um, and 
Um, I really encourage everybody to go to our website and look at our resources on negotiating better um, pay package. And I kept saying that to these gals, it's not your salary, it's a pay package. Mm -hmm. So things like um, relocation, uh, further education, um, you know, if travel, um, hello for moms, um, childcare subsidies, um, you know, certainly uh, some of the largest academic institutions in the United States you know, they're, they're rock star professors or the deans get free apartments. Now, in theory, wow. they're supposed to be reported, mm-hmm. right? But there's also, in some cases, an incentive clause. Now, for an artistic director, that might be a little weird. But for an executive director, if they lead a massive campaign that's super successful, I have no problem with them being compensated for that. Um, I think that's smart. As long as it's agreed to by the board of directors, it's transparent. And then where Nyla and I were going with... Um, I think with the really unusual Aspen Santa Fe situation is that um, there's, there's a place in, is it, she'll have to tell me if it's schedule J or schedule A or whatever it is, where you check how the compensation was determined. And as we've noted, best practices is comparison, whether you hire another firm or you run the numbers. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, or you can simply check the box saying that the board of directors approved it. And in Aspen Santa Fe's case, that was the box that was checked. Hmm. Interesting. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I mean, uh, it just, it's, I, 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 what do you do with this information? You know, it's like, it's so, it's so unnerving, but. Um... So one of, one of the things that's a little bit unusual is that I've sat on both sides of the table. Mm-hmm. Um, my training is a management labor attorney. So I've written contracts. I've written employee handbooks. I've also sat on um, strategic planning and compensation committees, et cetera. And um, been lucky enough to be involved in some organizations where it's very transparent and very clear what's going on. So I kind of know how it's supposed to look. Um, in a well-run organization, the people in the room are not just yes men or yes women, and they're not, you know, look, this is the Boeing seat, the, you know, ITW seat. They they actually care about what's going on and they bring best practices. They also do, by the way, have a fiduciary duty. The donor at large may not, right. and that is what I and my team have been working so hard on, which is first to generate accurate information. But then frankly, how do we make anybody care? And right. you know, 
folks are excited to show up for the gala, get their picture taken, but you really wonder, um, you know, what kind of pressure are they bringing to bear to, to make sure that the organization is run fairly and equitably, that Black men and Black women, you know, have what they need, including, you know, simple things like somebody who understands how to do their hair if they're going mm-hmm. through a series of costume changes, which is super important. And I spent 20 minutes with a dear friend of mine who just doesn't get it. She has short blonde hair explaining why this is so important, particularly in a ballet company. Mm-hmm. But, um, and that's me on a tangent, <laughs> but how do we make people care about this, right? Performing arts are sort of very low on uh, the agenda in the philanthropic world now. There's been so much concern about poverty, gun violence, um, food deserts, lack of healthcare, et cetera. But this is this is a big economic generator, and again, you know, women are women are the ones who are sort of toiling in the trenches here. And I think that's um, given my my previous job as corporate communications crisis consultant, I'm constantly looking for how to make this relevant, how to pull it into the mainstream, so that donors will pay attention and care. And that's where the idea for the gender equity index came from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. I want to hear um, about that's isn't that the report that's coming out um, that will have just come out by the time this podcast has aired? Correct. Um. So the the run that's coming out next week is um, the overview of, and I'd really love um, Janella to be able to talk yeah. about that. Is the number of uh, female choreograph works right. um, in the current season? Um, it's going to wreck people's Christmas. I mean, it wrecked mine as. Um, what we're talking about is the ranking of companies and, and we're not, it's not like one through a hundred, it's bucketing them mm-hmm. as Charity Navigator does. And uh, that's coming out sometime in January and we're going to do excellent, good, fair needs work. And we ask companies to respond to a survey. That'll be 20%. Um, we look at artistic leadership. That's our research and that's 25%. And then the number of women that are commissioned, and that's 55%. And I'm hoping that, you know, sort of, I don't know, you know, top 10 list, U.S. News and World Report, you all can think of a gazillion, you know, top 10 lists that that make it understandable for the world at large. But it's backed up by a huge amount of research into other gender equity indices from the U.N. and Bloomberg Equity McKinsey all the way through um, to Charity Navigator. Yes. So next week, yes, we will be releasing our second annual full report of First Look, which looks at all the works that will be announced for the 2022-2023 season. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a second annual report with a full budget on its own. Um, for two seasons before, it was announced with our season overview, which looks more like in the past of what was announced or what was produced last season. And then this one is looking forward to the future of what we'll produce next year. Um, and of this report, there were 1,075 works announced. And of those announced, only 27% of those works were choreographed by women, which unfortunately compared to last year's report is 2% less. As last year, 29% of works were choreographed by women. Um, we have consistently seen a pattern of men being the majority uh, the choreographers for these programs. However, it is sad to see that we are also declining as the years keep going. Um, and continuing with that, um, we also look at the different types of works. So there can be like full-length works, which is, of course, a full production. There could be mixed bill, et cetera. 
Um, and we found that of the full length works, only 21% were choreographed by women. Um, when you look at the largest 10 um, companies, none of those companies choreographed full length works or programmed full length works by women. When you look at the largest 25, only 4% of the works program programmed were choreographed by women, which shows us a, a very large disparity between why organizations who have the resources, who have the finances to program and commission many people, anybody are not choosing, actively choosing to program women in their spaces. And we really want to call to action for these people who have the resources to program women to come to the forefront and do it as if anybody can do it with fairness or with access and with excess, it could be them. That's that's such a particularly interesting piece of data, right? Because maybe places are just thinking like, oh, we can check that off the list by giving a 20 minute mixed bill work to a woman choreographer, but it's so much more investment planning, et cetera, to really do a full length. And wow, that's really, really an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So to put it in perspective, so this is pre-pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. This is before the the numbers got wonky. And as I said, I think the numbers are going to continue wonky for a bit, in part because of the different fiscal years and their therefore exposure to COVID. Um, The largest 50 ballet classically inspired companies together, their aggregate budgets were almost exactly two-thirds of a billion dollars. And as I have said, that ain't peanuts. Mm -hmm. Within that, the largest 10 were 60% of that. Wow. Wow. If you look at our, and I'm happy to send you guys a copy and you can put it up in your website, it looks like something fell off a cliff. So you have the largest 10 and then it just drops, Mm. right? Right. So what's fascinating to me is that the companies um, with the largest resources, we've identified 22 companies with endowments. Quick reminder, during the pandemic, people's endowments actually did very, very well, right? Right. So they have a cushion on top of a cushion in some ways. They're, at the same time, the least likely to commission full-length work by women. Mm-hmm. So they might put, you know, I, I've, I've heard this phrase, performative hygiene. They may do performative hygiene around women and people of color. But if you look where the big productions are going, it's almost exclusively white men. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it further, if you are uh, Justin Packer, Christopher Wielden, Um, you're not just able to get your own commission, which then goes into the rep and you get residuals and you're doing the nutcracker or whatever. You're also able to bring in your team. Mm -hmm. So your set costume lighting designer, your assistant, your repetiteur. So you're actually your own little economic universe. And there's this sort of almost physics, like load drag factor Mm -hmm. of what you're bringing with you. Mm -hmm. So the biggest companies the least equitable. Can you tell us who the top 10 are? Because I know we're, we're talking about by budget. So some people might think of, you know, once we get to nine and 10, who, you know, could tell us who who they are. Yes, Houston Ballet, Boston Ballet, American Ballet Theater, Pacific Northwest Ballet, Miami City Ballet, Joffrey Ballet, Philadelphia Ballet, New York City Ballet, and San Francisco Ballet. Yeah, and as, as of, you know, until very recently, only one out of, those 10 had a female artistic director. And of course, you guys, I'm sure have heard this phrase, the glass cliff. Mm-hmm. So women and people of color get hired when an organization is about to go off the cliff, right? right. And even in for-profit situations, what happened is very often a woman will write the ship and then, and then she's ejected. Um, thank goodness, 
you know, yay for the board of San Francisco Ballet, yay for the board of American Ballet Theater. So that number has now gone up to three out of 10. And that is probably the best news of 2022, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. How have the numbers changed since you've come in? Have you seen a fluctuation? I mean, because as dire as the situation is now, I imagine at the beginning it was, you know, we, we didn't have articles questioning why we were so male dominated. It did feel like there was um, a call to action in in recent years. So I'm I'm assuming probably the first data you pulled together was even bleaker. But now you say we're going down. Has there been some fluctuation over the years? I will I will take this one just because Nyla wasn't there at the beginning. Um, it's everybody wants to know this, and boy, it's a really confusing picture. So, um, for one thing, we were only looking at the largest fifty ballet and classically inspired companies, and we also weren't distinguishing between length of work, which I think is critical. Um, we're now to 150 companies, and that really skews it. I mean, it in some ways looks better than it is, which is why we're unpacking this. Um, we've also started looking at modern and contemporary companies as well. Um, I think there's a recognition now, Michael and Rebecca, that um, people that there's pressure to hire uh, people of color and women, but what we're seeing is it's almost a two-track system, right? And one track is for white males. And the other track, or or you know, European male, should we say? And then the other track is for everybody else. And so okay. you're seeing women commissioned by big companies to do a gala or to do a children's ballet. Um, but what I'd like to be able to do, and again, this is funding dependent, because for your audience, I am still almost completely self-funding DDP, mm. Um, mm. and that's a lot. So people say, well, why don't you look at this? Why don't you look at that? Answer is, we're building the plane um, mm -hmm. as we're driving it. We're learning, we're iterating, um, but we have to be very selective what we look at because I only have so much of Nyla and everybody else's time. Um, I'd like to go back and look at, you know, revisit the data from, say, 2016, 2017. Part of our difficulty, and we're struggling with that in terms of our strategic planning, is that companies tend to wipe their websites the minute they're finished. And right. that's not just their programming, but it's also who used to be in leadership. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's dancers, et cetera, but it's also who used to be in leadership. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I wonder what are some of the other projects um, looking forward that you guys want to get involved in, what data you want to be processing, what other things that you can unearth and that you're interested in taking a deeper look at? Natalie, you want to take first shot at this? <laughs> it's probably so much, I'm sure. Yeah, um, we, well, one that is happening, I'm currently working on a leadership changes data bite, which looks at the leadership changes um, that were announced in, 22, in 2022 and that could have happened in 2022 between, in, sorry, that could have happened in 2022 and can happen up until 2024 um, within artistic directors, executive directors, resident choreographers, and associate artistic directors, um, as well as the gender equity index, which is really exciting coming out. Um, but I know next year we really are trying to as well expand into uh, modern contemporary companies as well. Um, our niche really started as a classical ballet organization, and then we've gone beyond that. I I did a report in the past about um, just the top 50 contemporary modern um, companies, and I think we're going to try to apply the ADED salaries data byte to modern and contemporary companies. So I know 
that should be out around um, April or so in the spring next year. So I'm really excited for that. Um, as well as we're really using next year to kind of hone down on our philosophies of what we've already made. Um, this past year was really about branching out, as you can see, with 150 companies. There's a lot of information to source and um, organize, et cetera. And so we're just trying to be very efficient um, and being able to produce that amount of material in a very constant manner mm -hmm. in a way that is good for us as part of the team, as well as legible and comprehensible for you guys as audiences. So that's the big part of our mission next year is to oil out the machine. Be very our, um, our budget hasn't grown, but we're covering three times as many companies. So good for us wow. on that. Um, I would love to be able to pick up more creatives like composers, um, mm. set costume lighting designers, et cetera, where um, that gets into a whole nother order of artificial intelligence and programming to pick that material up. Mm -hmm. I'm also interested, um, but as you all can imagine, it can be very apples to oranges in comparing companies globally. And we're we're gonna we're we're trying to um start looking at season programming for I think our first step is gonna be English speaking countries, just because mm -hmm. you don't have the translation issues. Mm -hmm. So New Zealand. Um, New Zealand and Australia, and then on to the United Kingdom, et cetera. Um, I'm also very interested in exploring Central and South America. So we're not, um, oh, and also Canada, obviously. But again, we may have to rely on volunteers. And because you have different funding schemes, some are completely government supported, some are partially government supported. Then you get right. it behind the Iron Curtain or in China and things get really, really different. Um, but I'd like to I'd like to be able to look globally. So we have done that with our resident choreographers, um, and we've done that with, as Nyla's saying, the leadership transitions. And back the the reason for the leadership transitions is to try and keep track of where people are going, what they're doing. I would love to do a study looking at how long and how many jobs it takes for a woman to become an artistic director before a man, sort of how mm. how long their trajectory is. And because we're very focused on the barriers to uh, to women who act, as we all know, as primary child and elder care people, I'd be interested in knowing, for example, um, what percentage of women in, in um, the economy generally and then in the performing arts have children um, versus how many become choreographers or establish a career as a choreographer and artistic director. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. I mean, that that that's really what you said about how many jobs it takes. It's just that's. I can think off the top of my head how many of the men that are leading, some of whom are now moving on, but, you know, famously, it was just, oh, are you retiring at the right time? Well, you're going to, okay, and you're a famous male principal, come on in. We know you have no management experience, but that is why so not? Just and it's, it's, <laughs> that era is not completely over. I can tell you an anecdote. I have to be right. very careful that uh, I'm, I'm, I don't say who it's about, but I was sitting in the audience with an artistic director and we were watching a um, very well-known male principal who was moving towards the end of the career. And he leans towards me and he said, yeah, it's about time I started helping him become an artistic director. And I'm like, I know of at least five women who are female principal dancers that are moving towards the end of their careers that you know, and you haven't ever said that about any of them. So when these men look at another man, they see leader, artistic director. Mm -hmm. How do we change that perception? How do we get these men to look at, and Susan Jaffe, Tamara Rojo, obviously are going to help so much to have male artistic directors 
look at a woman on stage and say, huh, and then how does DDP help build the steps to get her there, right? Can I take it even, sorry, just like even a step further, like why does it have to be a principle? Michael and I have talked about that a lot too. We so often see principles as they will go on to be leaders, but there are so many, we know of so many dancers who maybe weren't ranked that have those leadership qualities or have so much to say and so much to offer. And I think that's such a great point. Sonia Kostic makes that, who was at, who is she and Stella Brera, um, completely transformed Cat's Band in like mm-hmm. a nanosecond, bless their souls, mm-hmm. right? Stella was a principal, Sonia was not. And she's like, well, what about the career for, you know, people who were professional dancers? Um, and let's be frank here. It's a much more, and I'll jump in anytime you want. It's a much more challenging landscape. And the skill set required to successfully run a company is not be a tall, good-looking man who can point his feet well, who has an international reputation. I think those days are gone. You actually have to have some management capabilities. Right. And certainly, you know, how people addressed and dealt with dancers has is rapidly changing, mm-hmm. right? right? Absolutely. Yeah. I just think so much of it could be like a mindset too of like, you know, the board thinks, oh, we need like star power in order to fundraise. Like there are a lot of elements and I certainly understand that as well. And and Michael and I have also had conversations before on the podcast about the difference between, you know, maybe even it's two different roles. There's really the artistic side, you know, something that they're, you know, working with right now, maybe at New York City Ballet is, you know, having like two different leaders in that position and how, because like you said, there's a whole skill set that's involved that we don't learn when we're at the bar every day. You know, it's just something totally different. Yeah. And I, I'd, I'd like to riff off of that point a little bit. I think you're absolutely right. Um, wouldn't it be revolutionary if the dance industry looked beyond dance, like took the blinkers off and looked at new stories, looked at new ways of leading, um, the theater world has seen people applying in teams for leadership. Mm-hmm. So two, three, four people who work really well together applying as, as a team. Um, I think that's a fascinating concept. Um, absolutely. Raising the bar is meant to help with those skills. We have a recent one on budgeting and how to think about budgeting, not as just moving numbers around, but as an expression of the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is really exciting and really necessary. But to your point, Rebecca, um, I've got programming in mind for boards of directors. So, you know, New York City Ballet got themselves into real trouble with members saying, yeah, members of the board saying completely inappropriate things to one of their dancers, right? Um, It's been a recommendation for a long time now in philanthropic circles that boards of directors sign their own code of conduct. Mm. Wouldn't that make a difference Mm. in board directors if board members had to go through media training, had to go through, um, you know, check off the same code of conduct that we're encouraging everybody else from the caterers to the custodians, to the dancers, to visiting teachers sign. So you have a shared understanding of culture. And I think that would make a big change. I really do feel in some cases, like some members of the board sort of look at dancers almost as toys, right? Or is sort of, I paid for it, it's mine. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, all of this is, I feel like we could go on (laughs) and on. It's just like this, but I, I, I thank you both so much for, for joining us. And all this information is just so compelling. Where can our listeners find it? Okay. Well, you can go to one of of our sites. You can go to our website, dancedataproject.com. I 
am also directing a tutorial, website tutorial, so you can listen to my voice and I can guide you through the website, um, as well as, but you can directly see our research. There's a research tab. You can click on it. You can see full reports. You can also click on data bytes, which are our mini reports. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram at Dance Data Project, in which we post many different um, news releases, press releases, as well as just small tidbits about what's happening in the industry, quotes from different women in the industry and what are their um, opinions and experiences on what is happening. So that is how you can reach And if anyone wanted to contribute to what you're doing, is there a way that we can do that as well? Bless you for saying that because that would be wonderful. Um, we do have a donate page, but also there's real people like us behind it. Um, if you want to donate, um, and we are also 100% transparent, I will show you the financials just the way we expect everybody else to. Uh, there is a donate page, but we are also here to serve the field. So you can reach out to us and say, um, I'd be interested in knowing X, or if you're negotiating a contract, um, we don't share the raw data because we have to make sure it's not corrupted, but we are here to help. And if we have the bandwidth um, and somebody has a question, we would love to answer it. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. It was so great to dive into this and we will be anxiously awaiting all your additional reports coming out and we'll dive into them. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you so much. What a delight. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.